I want to open by uh, showing you a brief video clip that hopefully puts into better perspective your working environment. So uh, watch this clip with me. So we're here in Bogota, Colombia, and we're about to go see Miguel Caballero, who's been called the Armored Armani. He makes bulletproof gear, but he makes fashion-forward lightweight bulletproof gear, so a nice blazer or an overcoat and even a bulletproof tie. The basic deal is for bodyguards and for kind of VIPs, people who want to look good and somewhat sharp and be comfortable while they're being shot at. So this is the tailoring area of Miguel's shop. All these women are working on bulletproof vests and shirts and jackets for United Nations, for various presidents, uh, for local police outfits, uh, pretty much anyone who thinks it's a reasonable possibility that they'll get shot. We have external use, internal use for men's, for women's, hot climate, cold climate, formal wear, and casual wear. And we've heard that all employees get shot. Is that is that part of the deal? Everyone, everyone tests it out? Yeah, that's true. All the people from the company, and especially of the commercial people, has to receive the test. I, sh I shoot all, all my employees, and I receive in two times the uh, test, yes. And on this way, like, like a philosophy of quality control. <laughs> that's great, right? I mean, you thought you had a tough boss. I hope you're far more comfortable working where you work. <laughs> I love that. I shoot all my employees. And literally, that's what he does. He takes an outfit that they have created, and they put it on, and they go to his office, and he pulls out a revolver, puts the bullet in, and they, it's like three or four feet away from him. And he just, it's crazy. <laughs> and it got me thinking, what does it take to work at this company? A little bit of crazy, a little bit of skill, right? You have to be good at what you're making, and a whole lot of faith. You have to totally believe in the product. It's either I believe in it or I quit. <laughs> because you know that you're going to have to put something on and get shot at. It's not like, oh, it's, it's mostly good. I mean, I tried my best. It's, it's either right or it's wrong. It's either life or it's death. You really have to believe in what you're doing if you're going to risk your life for it. And that's where we're going this morning. It says in the book of Ephesians chapter five, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. You see, we have opportunities that come our way all of the time. We have great opportunities, big opportunities, small opportunities. But what are you going to do with those? How are you going to respond to those opportunities? See, if you, don't trust, if you don't trust the product, if you don't trust the purpose, the plan, or the promises, if you don't trust the one behind all of those things, the one that's calling you, then you won't risk anything. Do you trust in the promises of God's word? We just finished two weeks of reach. We, we had a series about what God is doing locally and regionally and globally and what our part in that whole movement is. And next week we'll begin a new series called The Art of Neighboring, about truly loving your neighbors. I mean, what if Jesus really meant it when he said, 
love your neighbor. I mean, what if he really meant the person that lives right next door to you? I mean, there's challenges in reach and there's challenges in this upcoming series and, and some of these challenges are difficult. Some of these are stretching. It might mean you know, going across the world or it might mean walking across the street. It might mean starting conversations. It might mean giving things or giving things up. But these opportunities, they, they call something out of us. The opportunities that come our way call something out of us. They're risky oftentimes. And they cause us to use our influence and our talents and our resources. But here's the deal, if you don't believe in the one behind it, if you don't believe in his promises, his plan, his, his product, if you will, then you're not gonna risk anything. And so what are we doing with those opportunities? We're gonna read a great story in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 14. And uh, if you wanna turn in your Bibles there, that'd be great. If you wanna just grab one out of the pew, it's on page 454. And I wanna kinda set up this story a little bit. In this story, we've got uh, the Philistines and the nation of Israel, and they are at war with each other. And the king of Israel at this point in time is Saul, and his son is Jonathan. Now, you need to know a little bit of background that I'll read to you from chapter 13. It says, there were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So on the day of battle, none of the people of Israel had a sword or spear except for Saul and Jonathan. This is what's known as a military disadvantage, okay? Two swords. In the, I, I don't even know how that worked. I don't know if a guy was just like, whoa, okay, your turn. Give it back when you're done. Clean it off. Right? How do you go to battle with, with two swords? Was it sticks? Was it rocks? Was it slings? Was it rotten fruit? I'm not exactly sure what they were using, but they had two swords. And then the setting of this is verse 23 of chapter 13. It says, the pass at Michmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. Now, here's a picture of what some scholars think the pass at Michmash actually is. They think this is the actual location where this story took place. And uh, it, was a, it was kind of a trade route about eight miles outside of Jerusalem. And so it was important for travel and for trade. And if you can kind of picture on one side, uh, there would be the Israelite army, and on the other side would be the Philistine army. And uh, they were just kind of there, sitting, staring at each other across the pass. Now one day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Now, I wanna let you guys in on this as well. Saul was paralyzed at this point, not physically, but mentally. He, he was unable to take action because in the previous chapter, he had moved when he shouldn't have. He jumped the gun, he pushed his own agenda, he disregarded God, and he got punished for it. As a matter of fact, as soon as he sinned, the prophet Samuel showed up and was like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, sinning? <laughs> Sorry. Right, isn't that always the way? As soon as you kind of step across that line, somebody shows up to hold you accountable? Oh, yeah. As soon as he sinned, the prophet showed up and Samuel said, wow, I can't believe you did this. God is gonna punish you for this and because you push your own agenda and because this isn't the only time that you've done this, the next king will not come from your family. As a matter of fact, God has chosen another king. 
Now his son, Jonathan, who's the hero of our story, think about him for just a minute. You see, God choosing another king was not a value judgment upon Jonathan. Jonathan was a young man of character, and Jonathan was still engaged in this process, even though he could have been distant and detached and totally unconcerned, like, why do I care what goes on anymore? I was supposed to be king, and I'm not going to be king. But we see a, a young man of character here. It says, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sena. All right? Now, the first of these cliffs literally means uh, smooth and, and slippery. And the second of these cliffs literally means the tooth of a rock or a, a thorny bramble or a, a rocky crag. So for him to do what he's going to do, he's got to slide down the one cliff and climb up the rocky part of the other cliff. All right? That's the plan that he's going to do. And as we look at this, you're going to see risk, and you're going to see him use his influence, and you're going to see him step out and make the most of the opportunity that he's been given. Verse 6 says, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Interesting statement. He's like, yeah, let's, come on, let's go over there. Perhaps God will save us. And this is advice that you can kind of give from the safety of your own couch, right? When you're talking to a friend and, and they're making a decision that doesn't exactly seem huge, you're like, oh, you should go for it. You never know with God. You should ask that person out. Ask for a raise. Buy that house. You, you, you never know with God, right? No, it's easy to say in certain circumstances, but when it means sliding down one cliff and climbing up the rocky cliff into the teeth of the enemy, that's a tougher saying, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to say when you don't have a battle to fight, but it's difficult to say when you're the one moving forward. Perhaps God will save us. And in this phrase, there's uncertainty. There's this maybe. There's this, hey, it could work or it couldn't work. And I don't want you to read into this phrase that Jonathan lacked faith in God. See, what we need to understand is that Jonathan understood that certain things were out of his control. That, that God was in charge of certain things and, and he was responsible for his actions and so he could step out, but there was this sense of maybe God will step up. You never know. You never know with God. He can do it with a lot of people. He can do it with a few people. It reminded me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and that story where the king said, bow before the idol, and they said no. And on penalty of death, they stood before the king. Here's what they said in Daniel chapter three. O king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Like, we're just gonna do what we're responsible for. God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still follow him. That's faith in God. That's trust in God. That's, that's putting on the shirt and letting people shoot at you, right? And it's not that nothing bad can happen. It's not saying, oh, then everything's gonna be safe for me, but it's faith in God, trusting that he's in charge and that he is good. You see, sometimes I think we have this idea that if, if we say the right prayer, 
If we do the right thing, if we press the right buttons, then somehow God is obligated to come through for us with the proper response that we want, as if he's some type of vending machine or ATM machine, right? Like, God, if, if I step out, if I step out and do this thing, then you better take care of me. But we're not guaranteed that. We're not guaranteed that safety. We are guaranteed that God's in charge and that he's good. And we do need to understand that his, his product, his purpose, his plan, his promises are worth far more than anything that we could risk for. And how are we going to know if we don't step out? How are we going to know what God can do if we don't step out? How are we going to know what our faith is founded on if we don't step out and take these risks, these opportunities that God is calling us to? Now, there are a lot of risky things, right? Life, life can be risky. Like it says in Lord of the Rings, it's a dangerous business walking out your front door. There's a lot of things that are risky. Driving, dating, parenthood, middle school, <laughs> eating at Taco Bell. All of these things, highly risky. I'm not talking necessarily about those things. And I'm not talking about risks we take for adventure. I'm not talking about jumping out of airplanes. I'm not talking about sitting on crocodiles. Uh, Africa doesn't have this whole like, oh, stand behind the fence thing going. You can just get right up close. Um, your kids are safe with me, by the way. <laughs> Trust me. I'm not talking about risks for personal gain. I'm not saying, oh, invest in the stock market or play the lottery. Those aren't the risks that I'm talking about. I'm talking about stepping out in obedience and faith to further the kingdom of God. You see, that's what Jonathan was doing. Jonathan was stepping out and doing something that was bigger than himself. He was stepping out for the safety of the nation, and he understood the risk, and yet he was stepping out, and he was putting himself there. There's risks that we need to face, opportunities that we need to embrace in our lives. And it's not just risk that I want you to notice. I want you to notice how Jonathan approached it with his armor bearer. And the two times that he asked him, he just, hey, let's, let's go. Come on, come with me as we go across. And I think it's so interesting that it wasn't a command. It was influence. That Jonathan was using his influence in this situation. Influence is the capacity to have an effect on the character or development or behavior of someone. It comes from the Latin word, which influent, which means to flow into, which is a great picture, right? To, to flow into someone else, to bring out the best, to cause good to come forth from someone else because you have poured yourself into them. And we know that he had influence because look at verse seven. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. Influence. And I think we need to distinguish between influence and manipulation. Manipulation is the dark side of influence. Manipulation is using influence for personal gain. It's, it's a relational lie. It wasn't that. Jonathan didn't just have this young man's obedience. He had his allegiance. I'm with you completely. Another translation says, I'm with you, heart and soul. Do what you think is right. I'm with you. Let's go. You see, we're far more open to influence than we are to authority, right? 
I mean, we would much rather be guided in a certain direction than told what to do. You've probably had a teacher that was very authoritarian at some point in your school career where they told you to do something and they meant it and you bristled. But you also probably had a teacher that when they asked you to do something, you were all in because at some point they had poured into who you are. You see, somewhere along the line in this relationship, it went beyond just that authority. It went beyond just that command. It came over into influence. And I want you to think about that as well. I want you to think about the power of influence because it's something that you all have. And I want you to hear this. You are influencers. You have influence. Don't downplay your ability to influence others because you pass on attitudes and value. You pass on character traits. You pass on your love of sports teams. Both of my daughters love the Pittsburgh Steelers because their father has trained them up in the ways of the Lord. (laughs) My girls have never lived in Pittsburgh, ever, but they love the Steelers because of that influence from their dear father, right? You have influence. What are you doing with your influence? How are you using the influence that you have with other people? I love it. The armor bearer's like, I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. So we get to the brilliance of Jonathan's military plan right here. All right then, Jonathan told him, we will cross over and let them see us. And already I'm like, no, wait, stop. Here's what you need to do. You need to maintain radio silence. You need to go in stealth mode. You need to sneak up around the back. No, here's what he says. We'll let them see us. It gets better. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stay. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll fight. (laughs) That will be the Lord's sign. I'm like, really? That's the best we got? They say stay, we'll stay. They say come, we'll come. It'll be all good. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of this thing. The beauty is is that he has placed himself in a position where he is totally reliant upon God. Right? I mean, there's something about... Putting yourself into this position, I'm not hiding anymore. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is where I'll take my stand. Perhaps God will use me in this. You never know with God. But I'm going to step out, and I'm going to take a stand. Look at what happens. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here, which was the sign, right? Tracking. Come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson, which is very poor military trash talk. (laughs) Come on, climb right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and I want you to get that picture. They weren't just kind of walking up a gentle slope. They were climbing up using hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer had his back. He got those that came behind. Verse 15 says, Suddenly panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. It's amazing, right? I mean, the, the risk that 
Jonathan was willing to take. The influence that he had with this armor bearer had tremendous influence on the battle and had tremendous influence upon the nation. And I want us to see that God used the two of them stepping out to make a huge difference, and yet it was still God that got the victory. Verse 15, it's an earthquake sent by God that caused this panic. If there's any confusion, verse 23 says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The victory was God's, but he used them in that process, and he wants to use us to take advantage of these opportunities. You know, as I'm processing this story on my own, I'm thinking, what would I have done? What if I'm Jonathan? What if I'm one of the soldiers, and I'm sitting there, and and, uh, Saul is hogging all the shade under the pomegranate tree, and sitting on a rock in the sun, and I'm like, what? What can we do? Okay, resources. Two swords. Check. Uh, Okay. I don't have any authority. I'm not going to get all these people, right? There's no way I'm putting on that shirt and letting anybody shoot at me. I would have thought I was powerless to act. My daughter, when she was seven, was in Sunday school class downstairs here, and her teacher told her that there were children in Africa that did not have clean water. And she was like, what? There's children in Africa that don't have clean water? Are you kidding me? So she comes home, and over lunch, she says to my wife and I, do you know there's children in Africa that don't have clean water? Like we've been holding out on her or something? And we were like, yes. Pass the rolls. She's like, wait, that's not fair. No, that's not fair. We need to do something about it. Okay. (laughs) We could send them a bottle of water. You know, like, I don't know. So she's like, oh, we're doing something about this. So her, her little sister, four of her friends that were all under the age of 10 decide they're going to do something about it. So they start having lemonade stands, right, where they're out front of our house selling lemonade and jewelry, which means they're gluing rocks together and tying yarn around it. (laughs) People are very gracious. They're going into the classrooms around here with an Africa jar and telling the kids, There's people that don't have clean water and people are giving money. We're driving around the neighborhood and they're going door to door collecting cans, right? My my daughter calls grandma and she says, Grandma, did you know that kids just like me die every day (laughs) because they don't have clean water? My my mom's like, who do I write the check to? (laughs) Right? They start raising money. But I want you to think about this for a second. Six kids under the age of 10 with no authority and with no resources. What difference can they make? Let me show you a picture. That's a well in a village in Burkina Faso, Africa, because six kids with no authority or resources, but a tremendous amount of influence took a risk. Let me ask you. What are you going to do with your opportunities? What are you going to do with those moments? If, if you're a child or a student, college student, 20-something, it feels like you just have a ton of opportunities and you're making all kinds of decisions right now that will shape the rest of your life. Are you making those decisions to make the most of the opportunities that you've been given? Maybe you're parents of young children and you feel like, I don't have opportunities. My opportunities are cleaning up after kids and cooking and driving. 
right? I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to influence your children. Parents, you are the chief influencer in the lives of your children. And I know you think that that goes away when they get to be teenagers, but studies show you are still by far the chief influencer. And a recent study I read even said this, number two on the list sometimes is your child's friend's parents. You have an amazing ability to influence the direction of your children and your children's friends. Maybe you're beyond that. Maybe you feel like you're somewhere else in the, in the middle of your life and you're like, well, I'm not exactly sure what's there, but you have friends and family and work and neighbors. Maybe you're beyond the middle of your life. We'll just say it that way. I mean, just slightly beyond the middle of life. I would say this, you're not done till you're dead. That you have children and grandchildren and neighbors and people that you influence. See, we can't afford to live anonymous, invisible, indifferent, uninvolved, isolated lives. We can't afford to be too busy for this because the stakes are too high. And so I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what those risks are for you. It could be giving up something that you've held onto for years as security. It could be making that change in your life. For some, again, it, it means stepping out across the street or across the world. It could be having that conversation or sharing your faith or going overseas or volunteering or apologizing or confessing. It, it could be pounding a ribbon. It could be thinking about what kid you can send to camp. It could be thinking about who you can talk to at work on a deeper level beyond just the weather and sports. Who's God putting on your heart? You see, holiness isn't just what we separate ourselves from. It's what we give ourselves to. Holiness isn't just leaving behind sin. It's embracing the countless opportunities that we have been given to do good and to further the kingdom of God. Do you believe in the one who has called you? And are you willing to take risks for him? Are you willing to use your influence for him? Do you know who you are? I don't particularly like horror movies. Uh, they scare me, appropriately enough. Uh, but my parents let me watch a horror movie when I was a child. It's called The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and uh, it had these really creepy flying monkeys. Just is what it is. Still slightly frightening. Now, in the story, you know, the tornado happens and the house falls on the witch. <laughs> Spoiler alert, by the way going to tell you some of this story. And, uh, you know, nothing sticking out but her and legs and her magic shoes, which in the book, they're silver shoes, not ruby slippers. So you're tracking for later when I'm reading. But more important than the shoes that she was wearing, uh, the good witch came to Dorothy, and it says she came close and kissed her gently on the forehead. Where her lips touched the girl, they left a round, shining mark. And you need to know that in this story, Dorothy is sealed She's got this seal of this kiss. And so later on, when the wicked witch sends out the winged monkeys, the creepy monkeys, to capture Dorothy and her friends, it says, Dorothy, they did not harm at all. The leader of the winged monkeys flew up to her, his long, hairy arms stretched out, and his ugly face grinning terribly. But he saw the mark of the good witch's kiss upon her forehead and stopped short. We dare not harm this little girl, he said to them, for she is protected by the power of good. 
And that is greater than the power of evil. All we can do is carry her to the castle of the wicked witch. So Dorothy gets to the wicked witch, and the wicked witch was both surprised and worried when she saw the mark on Dorothy's forehead. For she knew well that neither the winged monkeys nor she herself dare hurt the girl in any way. She looked down at Dorothy's feet and seeing the silver shoes began to tremble with fear for she knew what a powerful charm belonged to them. At first the witch was tempted to run away from Dorothy but she happened to look into the child's eyes and saw how simple the soul behind them was and that the little girl did not know of the wonderful power she had. So the wicked witch laughed to herself and thought, I can still make her my slave for she does not know how to use her power. She does not know who she is. And so she was enslaved. You see, if we don't know who we are, if we don't trust the one that has called us into his purpose, into his plan, who has given us all of these promises, we aren't going to risk anything. We aren't going to take advantage of the opportunities that we've been given. But if we can remember that we are children of God, that we are deeply loved, that we are forgiven and that we are free and that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and that we are called to use the gifts and the talents and the influence and the resources that we have to bring fame to his name, to further his kingdom. If we can remember that, then we begin to make the most of these opportunities. God is calling us higher. He's calling us into these things.